I think it is so amazing and how relevant these podcast interviews I have with the current state of those clients that I am serving now. My interview with Albana Frioni is about top leadership and setting vision. And while that is important and expected, it is more about how we implement that vision. Now, case in point, I have an amazing company I'm working with right now who has a clear vision on how quality should be implemented to be more preventive than reactive. But the thing that I see in the past is that we failed to share with people how we were going to do it. It was more about what and what is important but how we interact, how we celebrate the collective culture of two organizations coming together and moving forward together. Setting a framework of one, working in one way with one process towards one goal, and then giving people the enablers, the tools they need to be successful and coaching new skills in order to achieve the what or the vision set forth by top leadership. So if this is you, and if you have had problems with great initiatives that need to move forward, very well communicated, but we haven't spent enough time explaining how, or to Albana's point, the ground rules, the ground rules so critical to how we operate going forward. Do not pass go until we've established ways of working, the ground rules, and how we can be successful. I can't wait for you to hear this amazing interview. Let's listen. The involvement of top leadership is crucial. The whole process, actually, if we want to have positive and accelerated and vital adoption of whatever change is being envisaged, the top leadership involvement is crucial. Not only because the top leadership is having a vision about the future and people expect the top leadership to have a vision. It's not because only they need to, but also people expect leadership to have a vision but also because some ground rules need to be settled in to be set in the way we engage what if i call the crowd into the whole process of change and those ground rules are very important welcome to the drop in ceo podcast I'm Deb Coviello, and as the drop-in CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, Join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I'm Deb Coviello, founder of the Drop-In CEO brand, and I am so grateful you've joined us for another episode of the podcast where I get to speak to amazing leaders, thought leaders, and share their insights with you and hopefully inspire you. And if you like this episode, as always, I ask if you could subscribe, rate, review, tell others so that we can continue to bring you great programming, a special thanks for all the downloads that we have been getting and the reviews. But just know at the heart of all of this, I truly care about the C-suite leaders of today and tomorrow to navigate your challenges and opportunities with confidence. And today, I have the great fortune of introducing a guest. Her name is Albana Frioni. She is an ICF PCC accredited coach and change advisor 
and she coaches and advises global leadership teams to instill a thriving culture that propels generative growth and innovation-based multiple bottom lines growth, integrating systems awareness, and caring for systemic impact. She is also a TEDx speaker and an official member of the Forbes Coaches Council, co-author of Inspirational Leadership Book, creator of Change Intelligence or Crowdsourcing Methods as a Strategy for Viral Change and of Generative Intelligence Coaching Practice. She is also a passionate curator of roses. We'll get into that with more than 30 rare variations and a researcher of cultural heritage on leadership and a practitioner of mindfulness. She is multifaceted. I am excited to get to know her and bring her to my audience. Albena, thank you for joining me on the show. Thank you so much, Deb. I am honored and pleased to be here with you and with your audience. So for my listeners, I am so thrilled. She was researching podcasts that she felt that her voice, her message, her insights could serve and it aligns so much with the C-suite leaders of today and tomorrow because we don't want you to struggle. We want to impart new insights, new ways of thinking that will help you move forward through your challenges. And so I can't wait to dig into all of her thought leadership and her offers but she's such an interesting person. So Alban, if you could share a little bit about yourself personally and tell us how you got to do this impactful work. Well, thank you so much, Deb. You met just a little bit earlier, my little one of six years old. I am a mother of three kids, 25, 20, and six. So I don't miss challenge at home, but also I don't miss joy and variety. And if I dare say, an inspiration of looking at today's and tomorrow challenges from the eyes of these different generations. So I am Albanian by origin. I am born and grown up in Albania and I left Albania for good, I would say, when I was only 26. And I have made home in Belgium. I've traveled a little bit in different countries, in Germany, in England, in Norway. And as I said, we made home in Belgium. So that's beautiful. And just so my listeners know, I too love Europe. I've traveled a bit. I just came from Germany, Switzerland, and Italy, where my children happen to be residing in Europe right now for some time. But though I have never been to Brussels before, I have been to the Netherlands. I appreciate the Dutch culture, but why the Netherlands or why Brussels? Why did you settle in that country? Well, it happened that after my studies in Norway, we had a opportunity, a job opportunity in Brussels. Although I must say that there was a mixture of several things. I left to Norway and make a career break. I was at that time working in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I went for a master in international marketing and strategy with a specialization in European lobbying. During that time, I became the mom of my youngest son, my eldest son. But also I happened to lose my brother during a big social unrest in Albania in the years 97. And at that time, as a young mother, understanding everything that was going on, I decided to take the opportunity of having a career in Belgium. And so we moved to Belgium. But what made us stay in Belgium was that cosmopolitan culture that we found and enjoyed in Brussels is a country and a city that allows for good integration, 
I felt home, me and my family, pretty soon. And we thought we'd be staying for a couple of years until things would settle down in my country. And we are there since 24 years now. You know, you bring up something important. We move around in our career, always seeking that next great thing, sometimes financial, sometimes for a balance. But when you bring up the point of you instantly felt a sense of community, acceptance, even though it was multicultural, I think that's really important when we pursue the people we want to work for, the companies we want to be associated with. It has to be a fit. We can survive some time in a culture that may not be aligned with our values, but over time it drains our energy and then it no longer seems like a good fit. So congratulations for finding that community that fulfills your family needs. Absolutely. It is that I found that culture, but I think that it is a two-way investment. I happen to be in an environment where there was a good effort and intention from my colleagues and everyone who surrounded us uh, to make us part of the circle. But it was also quite an openness from our side to uh, understand that culture, to be part of it. And it was a give and take to give whatever we would bring from our culture and to take over whatever we found appreciative in the culture that we were exploring and setting connections with. So it's so exciting learning about different people's heritage and culture. I'm always curious. I ask about their last names, their families, because I think it's important that we truly understand the whole person and their heritage. It fills in the gaps of understanding what makes a person act or behave the way they do. You get to understand their values. It's a critical part of knowing the whole person so much more than the technical work that we do when we come together. So thank you for filling in all those blanks. I I really appreciate that multicultural appreciation and dimension to who you are. But I'm curious now, you've had a career shift. Bring us forward into the work that you're doing now. Yeah, you're right. I am approaching slowly 30 years of professional life and very often involved in missions that involve some degree of novelty, whether as an advisor, as a coach, or as a change manager. An involvement, I would say, context projects that are very much intended to change the game, whether it is a business model, a service model, or a shift in cultural orientation. And so in all those activities, I care that this is done consciously. And this is what I strive and still do from the beginning of my career till the end of it. And in my coaching work, I try to help leaders manifest the conscious leader that we find in every uh, game changer. So my activity evolves around advisory coaching, but also in leading frontline change and transitions of different sorts. And in my early years as a child, I was longing for change. As I said, I grew up in Albania during the years of dictatorship. And I learned to how to navigate through the constraints of the system and how to keep hope and passion and commitment to personally grow and to kind of achieve what I felt was inside me. And so I started my career in international relations as a business analyst, and I found it curious to see how the sense we made of the world influenced the partnerships we would build and the speed and the direction of the transformation that our country was going through during that moment. And when I moved to the IT industry, which was my first engagement in Belgium, 
this initial exposure to the institutional world helped me to compose business offerings that were often in the winning side, from where the importance of understanding the culture, I would say culture of a country, but also the culture of a certain industry, and in that case, the institutional culture. Now, the beauty of the work that I did within that particular engagement was that I was often member of teams that not only built business proposals, but also delivered what was in those business proposals. So kind of making a connection between the promised value and the delivered value. And it wasn't always easy, but I kind of grew up to love that. And whatever I did afterwards, I paid particular attention that what was promised and what was delivered, they were closely connected and followed and built on each other. So at certain moments during this engagement, I mean, I moved in different roles and in different functions. I carried many heads during those five years. But at certain moments, I joined a newly created team that seemed very promising, but actually turned out to be a disaster. And from the 150 members of that team, I think only a handful of them stayed in the team and were integrated in other activities. At that time also, my mentor left. And it was for me a sign that it was about time for me to go to. And so I left and I joined a more dynamic team that was a pioneer in developing software as a service solutions in the logistics industry. And it was a continuation of what we are doing on bringing some very novel technologies on building what we call the global secure and visible supply chains. We hear a lot about that now when we talk about blockchains and about artificial intelligence and secure transactions and so on. But that work has already started, I would say, probably some 15, 20 years ago. And so I loved the work that we were doing, but soon it became clear to me that I was going too fast. We had a yearly growth of 300%, and I expanded the team, and I brought in a new way of involving the customer in the new product development. Somehow the organization could not respond to my drive for growth. And so I opted to go for an MBA with a clear idea of pursuing my call for helping leaders embrace what I call today generic leadership. And I'll talk later about that and, and use digital enablement strategically and holistically. And so it was my idea that by doing that, I could focus my activity on creating and managing change systemically. So and this is what I do since 2010 helping leaders to create a transformational change and instill a thriving culture that I hope and I believe propels growth in multiple bottom lines. So that is very important for me, that multiple bottom lines approach to the growth that I help clients achieve. Oh, that's a beautiful story, and I appreciate that. And there's a couple of things you said that really resonate to me was from an early on, a core value to you is you talked about having hope and passion despite constraints. And sometimes just hard work and pushing forward can only get you so far. But the greater value or feeling of just having hope and passion, sometimes people say that's silly, but having that actually is something that can pull you through 
any adverse situation. So I, I think my listeners should value is just hope and passion. Give it more value than other people might. But I really like what you say as you went through a transition to the purposeful work is that you recognize there were moments. And that's what I really love is everybody on <laughs> listening to this has a moment. The problem is, do we actually listen or see these moments for which we need to come forth and be ourselves and bring forth our leadership and the change we want to make in the world? The mentor leaving was the sign in addition to the change that may not have been as valued and just knowing, well, maybe I can provide that value elsewhere. So I love your story, but I would love for you now to bring us into some of the frameworks for which you help leaders. You have so many things I read in your bio. You talk about the crowdsourcing method. You talk about generative intelligence. Tell us more about these areas of your thought leadership and what is the impact on these frameworks that you bring to organizations? Absolutely. I'd love to share more about that. And there's one thing that I want to say that those, especially those two particular methods, they have been built on experience from the ground, on what I have gone through and what my collaborators have gone through and what my clients have gone through. So if I talk, for example, about change crowdsourcing, the idea of putting a method together came at a moment when we really wanted to help the two different organizations to make a major shift, one on the way they were working and the other one on reinventing themselves and creating a better synergy between the different generations that were in the organization. The organization was so aging after a while and they, they needed to reinvent themselves. And so the bigger question came, how will we be able to accelerate those very important shifts. And we were exposed to different ideas, but one idea that we explored and we took throughout the process was the idea of crowdsourcing the ideas from the bottom of those organizations on how that innovation or that shift needed to take place. I came, as I said, from the experience of the major transformation that happened in Albania. And also back then, nobody talked about change crowdsourcing. But indeed, what happened during that big transformation from a dictatorship system to a, from a unique party system, a one party system to a multi party system was in fact a way of getting the mass of the people to support a certain idea to the levels of decision making. And it made me quite an impression back then on how the different forces were trying to use the ideas of different people on the ground to make a major shift and a very, very quick shift. I can tell you, you know, they had a change happened within a couple of months, which it was, I mean, it was something that was being hoped for for years and decades, and suddenly it happened in a, in a couple of months. So that is to say what is the power of crowdsourcing change. Of course, I've been studying a little bit many other cases, but when it came to organizational life, as we were exposed to those core questions, how can we accelerate the shift? It became very clear that it wouldn't come from a couple of advisors giving some directions on how the shift had to come. Also, they might have had some good ideas. The shift would have come a lot easier, but getting everybody involved into it. Also, with some other things happening, but getting everybody involved. And that is the way that we proceeded. Now, of course, 
every method has got its own ways, its advantages and its disadvantages. And mostly the disadvantages come when we don't go fully into the spirits of a certain method. For example, change crowdsourcing is about participation. It's about collaboration. It's about trust. It's about evaluating, appreciating diversity. But it's also about transparency. It is also about clarity of decision-making. It's also about having a clear vision about the future in terms of leadership. Without that, no matter how good and powerful ideas we can get from everybody involved, we won't be able to go too far. I'm very excited about this concept, and I have to jump in because I need to understand the balance. So in the past, (laughs) in my leadership, I used to think, oh, grassroots, if I can get everybody on board and I work with all the people, I'll be able to get a change. And I realized that in one culture, if I didn't get top leadership buy-in, I wasn't going to get the change. So then I switched my approach. I do a lot with top leadership. I make sure that I present, I socialize the concept, I get buy-in, I get some advocacy. So by the time I present it, everybody is on board and then I can go into execution grassroots, bottom front line, at least in certain cultures, didn't work for me, even though that's where I think the energy is. So help me to understand the balance. How much do we need to still engage the top line leadership? Because you can have the best ideas coming up from the bottom, but it can be squashed or abated or mitigated. I just want to understand that challenge because I know there's a lot of people out there that says, yeah, I have great relationships with the front line. I can get them excited and then not be able to move forward. So help me a little bit with that. Yes. The involvement of top leadership is crucial. The whole process, actually, if we want to have positive and accelerated and vital adoption of whatever change is being envisaged, the top leadership involvement is crucial. Not only because the top leadership is having a vision about the future, but also because, and people expect the top leadership to have a vision. It's not because only they need to, but also people expect leadership to have a vision. But also because some ground rules need to be settled in, to be set in the way we engage the, if I call the crowd into the whole process of change. And those ground rules, I I talked a little bit about transparency and need for decision-making, these ground rules are very important. So with the leadership having a vision, what what happens is that normally we're going on a top-down communication of where the leadership wants to take the organization next. But then somewhere in that process, there is a mistranslation of that vision into what it means for the grassroots. And I think that that crowdsourcing, that involvement helps into that level of details on how do we do that. And people have got such a creativity into coming up with solutions or with ideas on what would be helpful. Now, if the leadership is putting some ground rules on how do we make those ideas to kind of go into several layers of, let's say, decision making and making it to the, what I call it, to the approval level, it makes everybody clear 
How is my idea being processed and how is it being accepted? Let me illustrate it. If we're going to say that we want to, a very recent case, we want to expand into a new market. And the, at the same time, the organization is going through a cost-cutting exercise. Expanding and cost-cutting for people doesn't make much sense. And so the first reaction of the people in the organization was, how can we expand when you are laying off people? So at that moment, the leadership changed the strategy. And so they went after a consultation with the advisors. So they went back to the people and to the organization said, our organization needs to move forward. We need to find new ways of having growth. And we need to be able to provide the best services we can to our customers. We need to be customer-centric. We need to listen to the market. Can you help us find some ways for doing that? Yes. And it was amazing to see how many ideas came up from the mass of the people. Now, the mass of the people, that mass of the people, when we put the ground rules, were very well targeted, were people that were directly involved with the kind of growth that they, the organization wanted to address, but there were people that were not at all directly involved. And we could see what was the difference between this different kind of input. There were suppliers, there were customers, there were employees, there were investors that were involved, there were new recruits that were involved that had absolutely no knowledge of the past of the organization. So it is very interesting to see what is the wealth of the information that comes. And when we look at, and we had to put some decision rules on how is the information going from one day, like we give some first day of information. And even some people say, let's look at new markets. Okay, when we go and look at new markets, what is the value that we want to bring to those markets? What kind of markets we're looking at? So we kind of enter into a conversation on the points that are supported to the strategy. And the strategy is, we want to find ways of growing our business, of bringing the best to the customer. So that was settled. And this is what helped this initiative, the strategic initiative of expanding your market from being initially total disaster, totally going into turmoil of discussions within an organization not supportive at all, into being one of the, I wouldn't say the fast acceptance, but it went through a process that was once settled and once agreed upon, had the adoption and the acceptance of everybody in the organization. And the topic of layoffs wasn't anymore associated with the agenda of growth. I love, love, love this story so much because, first of all, it inspires me for an actual assignment that I'm on right now. And while I have a technical deliverable, the ultimate outcome that I realize is I need to make a cultural shift in the organization. So I am spending many, many, many hours not only speaking with the top-line leadership to understand the outcome that they want, but I'm meeting with all the frontline people that will have to ultimately execute it and understand their concerns and ask them questions about how is it done in the past? How would you see this done in the future? Really, when we have initiatives and strategies, yes, there has to be that top-line vision, But it's not about cascading information, but it's about creating conversations for not just what we're doing, but how we're doing it, because it brings in a different mindset and you deflect or remove those things that say, by the way, we got a layoff going over here. 
It's about changing the conversation to something that is productive and always moving the organization forward. Love the story so much. You have a couple other areas that you have approaches on. I think you've got about the generative intelligence approach, but you also talk about leading and shaping the future. What would you like to share about now? Because I think these are both great insights. I want to learn more from you. Absolutely. I just wanted to add one more thing on what regarded to change crowdsourcing. Now, we can use that as a strategy inside the organization, but that is a great strategy on coming with innovations in terms of our product developments. And in, in that area, of course, that's one complication that is the ownership of the ideas. But we have seen teams that have come with wonderful ideas on new products that would come even from their competitors. So it's a watch out point. I think it's very beneficial for all those that are in new product development to leverage change crowdsourcing. And it's not so much into organizational change, but it is more of a change on how we develop new products. And so this is also related a little bit to the generative intelligence. I think that today we and, and the leaders in the organizations are living into times of very fast pace of change. And by the time they've got a vision about the future, things around them have changed so fast that that becomes old. That was from tomorrow. And one question that is frequently posed is, how do I keep up with the pace of change? And of course, crowdsourcing helps with that. But another way, which I found to be quite helpful for most of the leaders that I'm supporting in their journey is nurturing the use of their multiple intelligences. And that is what generative intelligence is all about. It is ability to engage into in the use of multiple intelligences into creating that systemic awareness and creating also what I call often an approach to life to problem solving, to future shaping, that is coupled with an innovative way of working and bringing in innovation. So the idea of multiple intelligence is not new. And it comes basically from the understanding that the rational mind has got its own constraints in how far it can take us into resolving what I call that complex situations, complex problems. And dealing with complexity is the primary responsibility. It is what CEOs do on the day-to-day. Now, what the generative intelligence helps with is just going beyond your rational thinking and engaging with your intuition and engaging with your emotional side, with your systemic awareness, subtle awareness, spiritual awareness, to be able to see the situation on the multifacets that it does represent. We all know now from all the research that is done in neurosciences, we call it like that multiple brains. And our heart brain and our gut brain are as strong and even stronger in terms of their neurological activity and in perceiving the different information that comes to us from the different senses if we pay attention to it. And when we talk about generative intelligence, or the work that we do on generative intelligence is all about 
increasing that level of systemic and subtle awareness that allows us to capture that systemic feedback that we can get for the multiple senses and the environment we're working in. I've seen wonderful outcomes, not only into just having that revelation and saying, now I can see that what seems a complex problem, and especially what seems a problem of duality, either or, actually has got so many options and perspectives that I can take and so many more solutions that I can address. I think it's potentially a way to get us unstuck from what seems to be the impossible because we've exceeded our capability with our current senses. I think that's why sometimes, and I know it's more sophisticated, they call it like a sixth sense that even when we intellectualize based on what we see, hear, smell, taste, feel, it still doesn't make sense to us. And it's hard to make good leadership decisions. I think we forget the chemical nature and the biological nature of our bodies and the mind and all of that connectivity. And I know this sounds a little bit woo-woo, but honestly, if your gut is bothering you about a decision, lean into all of these other senses. They actually probably need more respect. They probably are some of the best decision makers that we have or can help us make those difficult decisions. So trust your gut. And I know this concept is really important. We need more of it just than what's in front of us. (laughs) Absolutely. It seems, as you said, it seems a little bit far to to be tangible. But in the day-to-day work, it translates into what we call that expanding our capacity for insight, hindsight, and foresight. I keep saying that because we are so so taken by the time pressure, leaders especially hardly take any time to step back, taking time to think and make sure that the experiences of the day translate into a sense-making and a sense-giving. I've worked with people that are very sharp and very intuitive and hardworking, of course. But that whole pressure that we had during the day often do not allow leaders to actually take stock of that learning and apply to what is coming next. Especially what I see, there is a kind of impoverishment of the creative imagination. It is sometimes a fear that I have to comply to a certain agenda and going beyond that agenda is going to maybe destabilize my approach uh, to finding solutions that seem and sound rational. But it's only after there is maybe some work into creating that necessary state that a leader needs to be in and to stepping in the deeper moments of decision-making that the leader understands that actually it is a blessing. It's a moment that connects me even more with whoever is out there that I need to connect, be that investors and shareholders, be that my leadership team, and be that my employees. We see that, for example, I had that one client that was really stuck in the moment of wanting to take a difficult decision that would come as a surprise to the leadership team. Now, there was a moment that that particular person was 
used to swing and used to do the butterfly style of the swing. It wasn't until he connected with that moment when he used to swing and he had that feeling of embracing and conquering the moment of getting in the depths of the water that he kind of understood what it would be like to go into that intervention that would come really so hard to everybody. And with that, he developed and came back into that sense of confidence. I can do that. And it's going to be as beautiful and as powerful as the time when I was swimming. And what was interesting is I participated into that meeting as an observer, and I could see the body language. And it was a body language that was so confident, so calm, so connected with himself that actually resonated so much with the leadership team. When the meeting was over, there was only one reflection. I would have never trusted that it was possible. It's a beautiful story. And I think the inspiration for me is just, and again, I say I am in a new client engagement right now. They have called me in to do one thing, but my sense is that my calling is to actually help with the cultural change and reinvigorate the organization from their origins when they were much smaller to now they are successful, but they're to one where they potentially could be even more successful. So I know you have so, so many speaking topics, but I want to bring this to a close now because I want my listeners to learn more about you, how to connect with you, what are some things that are coming up, and any last closing thoughts, because I think what you bring are just so many really important thought leadership concepts that they can bring into their workplace to get a different result. So any last thoughts for our listeners? Well, what I've seen that the leaders go through is a process of growing into what I call that three critical moments of their maturity, envisioning, committing, and connecting. And during that process, there are several important dialogues that they hold with themselves and they hold with a system out there into which they make an impact. I normally call that the the destiny dialogue, destination dialogue, the directing dialogue, the trust dialogue, the learning dialogue, the reason dialogue, and so on. But what I understood is that unless a leader goes into that purposeful pathway of integrating those three important steps of the leadership maturity, their impact is going to be diminished by the pressure and securities and complexity and ambiguity of the day-to-day life. So I do have a leadership program that does take leaders through those nine steps of maturity building. And I have been very happy to see how the participants of those this coaching program have made use of developing those what I call the nine dialogues of leadership wisdom into their day-to-day. For me, the encouragement that I want to give to the leaders is the way that you are following your call and you are committed to it and you strive for connecting with the wider system to which you want to make an impact, you're going to be powerful and you're going to realize the potential and the call that is within you. 
Beautifully said, Albana, and very inspirational. I am so grateful that you found me and we have brought your great wisdom and thoughts to my listeners. Excited to see where you're going to take the business as well as impacting so many more leaders. Albana, it's been a pleasure and I wish you continued success. Thank you so much, Debbie. It's been a pleasure sharing the mic with you. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, CEO's Compass will change the way you think about leadership, navigate rapid transformation, and elevate the leaders of tomorrow. If you're feeling off track, the CEO's Compass assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days, not months. You can learn more about the CEO's Compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com. Now go out and lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.